Welcome back um, to another episode of Recovery in the Raw, where we get real and raw, and it gets raw about real life. I almost forgot how to say it again. Um, (laughs) We have an extra speaker with us today. Um, We're going to have Aaron joining us again, and you guys um, will hear her story soon. Um, Today, we're going to talk about long-term recovery and what that looks like uh, and what it took for us to get here um, because there's so much that goes into it and it's different for everybody. What worked for me may not have worked for Casey and what worked for Casey may not work for Aaron and the same with Jade. Um, so I think it's helpful to, you know, kind of get everybody's perspective because everybody's recovery looks the same, does not look the same. <laughs> <laughs> Let me contradict myself. It's identical. <laughs> Cookie cutter. So let's just give you all the answers so you can figure it out. Um, so I want to kind of touch on that, um, and we'll, we'll let somebody go first um don't have the time to talk yeah casey jump right in dude i can can go well so to get to the point of where recovery was not just an option but it was necessary is um what it took for me to even try like really try to get clean like I was one of the ones that I had to I had to have nothing mm-hmm. like it's I've spoke about it before it took me a year to realize I was even really homeless um and then I had to get to such a hard dead end that there was like no other option, option. yeah mm-hmm. um and so when I went into um I went to detox and then I went to, um, a treatment center and, um, I went into, because I had been living homeless, like the way that I lived when I was, when I was homeless was I, I was the person that showed up to, to kick it, you know, and then three weeks later, you're like, we're still there. Still doing here? <laughs> you know? Cause I was, I was just riding waves. Yeah. That's how I lived my life. Like, let's, let's see where this takes me. Let's see how long I can ride this situation out. Mm-hmm. Let's see, you know? And, um, so that's the kind of mentality that I went into as well. Let's just see where this goes. And I was unaware at the time that, you know, that's what they talk about when they talk about willingness. Um, for me, like, I think they say, and like in Christianity, you only need like uh, faith the size of a mustard seed. And that's kind of how it was for me with willingness. Like it didn't have to be like this big, huge fucking captain recovery cape on my back. Say yes to every single thing. Exactly. When they ask, um, it was just, well, let's see where this goes. Dude, I was terrified to go into treatment, but that was my thinking. Like when I finally got there to the point that I was going to go in, I was like, there's no way in hell that what I'm about to do can end up worse than where I'm already yes. at. So yes. let's just see what happens. Like, Cause when you have, when you have nothing to lose, right. you have everything to gain. Right. Yep. Yep. Um, and so because of that, like, let's just see where it goes. That, that kind of like started snowballing mm-hmm. and like, it made me think twice about like, do I really want to fight this CA worker over my coffee privileges or do I just want to shut the fuck up and um, not get kicked out of here and not blow yeah. it up like I always do? And so I slowly started making, you know, better and better decisions and taking more and more suggestions. And then, like, before I knew it, like, 
I was given my phone back and immediately freaked out because, you know, the, <laughs> the fucking messages start rolling in from yeah. all the people you do not need to talk to when you're in treatment. And surprisingly enough, I was like, whoa. And I immediately took my phone to my counselor and we went through and deleted everybody. And I mean, like, it's just stuff like I that. I think that's that, one like, of the things though, that we need to touch on is in the part of what it takes to sustain long-term recovery because... When you're either in that phase of treatment where you can communicate with the outside world or you just get out, everybody misses you, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm fucking sure you do. And everybody's trying to reach out to you. So I think that's one of the important pieces of what it takes is cutting those ties to Mm -hmm. when they say people, places, things, I took that very literally. Yeah. I have to change it. Like, everybody's got to go. It doesn't matter how long I've known them or how much, you know, we care about each other or what we've been through. Like, if I want this to last for me, I cannot communicate with you. Not right now. In the future, if you want to go to a meeting and get clean, whatever, like maybe we can revisit that then. But right now, I'm sure everybody thinks, thought I was like some kind of, you know, holier than thou. Like, I don't give a fuck what you think about me right now because mm-hmm. my recovery is more important. Well, than, it's that gift of desperation too. Right. I mean, our willingness to that, do anything. same thing that Casey's talking about. Like, I was so desperate. I was, at, when I actually, the time between I found out I was pregnant and the time I got into treatment mm-hmm. was almost three months. Right. So... It was the, the hardest three months I'd ever fucking had, ever. Mm-hmm. And I was smoking weed for a brief period of that time. And then I tried to just stop everything. So I was white knuckling multiple meetings because that was the only way I could do it. And then, long story short, I was in my car full time at that point. So it was like I could go home and sleep in a bed at my mom's. But I didn't want to do that. I wasn't ready to admit all the things that I needed to do as becoming a parent. Like, I knew mm-hmm. all the shit was going on. So, when I went to treatment, it was the same thing. They take your phone. They take all your things. Right. I had, like, three or four phone numbers that I wrote down of, like, significant people, parents, right. two or three <clears> friends. <throat> and then, same thing. They gave me my phone privileges. And it started going off, going off, going off. And they gave me the ability, like, you can keep your phone if you want to. And I opted to turn my phone off and give my battery to, because I had an old phone at the time give my battery to my counselor. And I said, I'm only doing this because I know myself well enough to know. Like, I think having the phone gives me a piece of, a little bit of peace of mind, but I want you to keep the battery. Like, I don't want it, I don't want it, because until I have my first real thing with my sponsor, and I can sit down. And so my entire first sponsor pass that I had was like two and a half hours or something like that. And we went to Waffle House or somewhere, I don't know if it was Waffle House, somewhere close by, oh, Huey Louie's, I think, or something. And we went and went through the whole phone together. Mm-hmm. The whole the whole thing. <clears throat> if it was anybody I ever got high with, sold to, bought from, right. um, kicked it with that I knew that they did dope at any point, right. even if I had got high with them, they were off the list. But completely. I think that speaks to the also two other things we have to have is a self-awareness and the ability to be honest. 100% mm-hmm. honest with ourselves and for those around us. Because yeah. if you couldn't have been aware enough to say hey this is going to be a problem for me and honest enough to say i need you to step in then you would have and i think too that's at least for me like i know everybody's pathway is different but for me i had to have that separation right because i had to have the amount of separation from everything i had been around to be able to see clearly enough that that is not this Mm -hmm. and this will not be that but i i can't continue to compare one thing to another thing like well that too and it's because you're when you're if you're anything like me like when I was out there prior to getting into treatment like I didn't 
I genuinely like I'm not fat, I'm not embellishing. I didn't know anybody that did that wasn't right. in that world. Right. Me either. Like it was my entire world and I was so far at the bottom of this world that like there was no light of day. Mm -hmm. So I needed somebody to like come like the pluck freaking you. alien yeah. claw in Toy Story <laughs> and pluck me out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like I needed that. Mm -hmm. um, I tried to get clean on my own before treatment. It did not. It's work. just, yeah. I mean, like, what are you going to do? Go get clean at the trap house? Like, right. I went to, mm -hmm. I left. I had, a, like, when I'd go to meetings, I'd get pissed because Jeff didn't want to go. So I knew he was at home getting high, right? So then I would just get high and then go to the meeting. And then all I could think about the whole time was, like, what is he doing and getting back to get high? And then I'd come back and do the same thing. And, like, I tried to do the outpatient thing at Willowbrook and, like, that didn't fucking work. And it just, I couldn't do it. And, in the outside world because I was so surrounded by and engulfed in that like, I mean, everything. That, like there are people that are still, um, you know, in the, the functioning addict mm -hmm. part of addiction. And I think that it's probably possible for them to do like an IOP right. or maybe just therapy or maybe just meetings or, you know, whatever, whatever. That's, I'm not saying that it's not possible for right, me. It's just different for I was, but because of that, that honesty piece that you're talking about, like, I never had a struggle with that. Like, I knew for a fact in my heart of hearts that I was a junkie. And I just didn't know there was a solution to right. that. You know what I mean? Um, like, I, that was my, my justification that I used to tell myself all the time was like, like, all you people walking around, like, holier than thou. Like, I feel bad for you. At least I know what I am. You know? Like, there has to be a villain in every story. And I'm willing to do that for you. You know? Like, <laughs> You're welcome. Right. You're fucking welcome. Yeah. Like, self-righteous junkie. <laughs> oh. But, yeah, the, I mean... The honesty, the will, I mean, you know, everything they say in, in the literature, all the one-liners, the only thing you have to change is everything, and, like, all of that shit is That shit is so cheesy. It's annoying so as cheesy. it is. It's you so it. true, though. Yeah. But, like, when you have that amount of clarity, like, in space, to actually, like, listen to what that is and, like, shut the fuck up and be able to reflect a little bit on what the shit is, it takes on this whole deeper meaning. Right. But in the meantime, we're like, oh, yeah, living like, oh, like, you know, you know, like, all this. It's just, it's annoying yeah, as fuck. It was. Like, <laughs> uh, you feel like, at least I did, like, there was all these old-timers in there, and they are just, like, harping on you. Yeah. It felt very much like my dad. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> well, if you, you know, you just do this or that, like. Yeah. Dude, the old-timers used to scare the fuck out of me. Yeah. Be like, do you want to fucking die? die? Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, uh, I'm in treatment. <laughs> I'm doing my best. <laughs> They'd be like, you haven't fucking worked a step, you sorry motherfucker. <laughs> like, uh, uh, I'm sorry. You know what's out there for you? Fucking relapse and death. <laughs> like, <laughs> Hey, Bill, how are you? Yeah. Like, this is my first meeting of the day, man. Did you have coffee? Like, what's going on? That used to bother me so bad because everybody's not in the same place, man. And what, like that, go to meetings or die in that tough look. Like, it doesn't work for everybody, and it can actually push people out the door. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah. That's not effective. Not, I mean, maybe for some people, but it's not anymore, you know? And it just... 
I think it's especially not effective for people that haven't had the space uh, and the therapeutic type treatment. Right. And if you're dealing with somebody who's just coming off the streets or maybe somebody that has severe amount of trauma or maybe that somebody has some kind of personality disorder or something like that, like you're pushing them out and yeah. that's not, it's not effective. Yeah. Um, I think there's a bunch of social uh, dilemmas that pop up and really any um, group social setting, right. whether it be work or meetings or any sort of fellowship. Well, I mean, I think hell, that's even why church has got politics to yeah. it. So and, much is like the more we know, the more we grow, right? Yeah. So the more things shift. So, and I know we're getting a off topic. We'll get back on topic. But we like when AA around. first started, right? It was just AA. Mm-hmm. Right. So when AA grew into NA and CMA and HA and M, like everything else. So, and that's why I think we're seeing this growth in cares and peer support and all recovery because uh-huh. we're learning that that doesn't work for everybody. Inclusion. Right. Right. As a matter of fact, I, um, so in, in my meeting, I am the GSR, which means I go to the area level and, um, our, it's a, it's a CMA, right. um, and our, at World, they made um, a DEI committee, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion committee um, to combat that very thing, right. like make everybody feel included. Um, why is it that you know this meeting is only these type of people, right. and this meeting is only these type of people, and this meeting is only these type of people? And it's it's because you know like those people have gravitated towards each other yeah. and that's where they feel at home. <coughs> right, and I do know when I was in treatment, they used to take us to this uh, <coughs> AA meeting at like uh, in the evening. And it always rubbed me so wrong when they were like, if I'd slip up and say I'm an addict or something about drugs, they would immediately pretty much tell me to shut the fuck up and get out. I got this is out not my place that they can tell me where to go. Yeah, I, I got like, kicked out <laughs> of a meeting once what? because I, I fucked up and started talking about drugs and it was an AA yeah. meeting. And I get that, like, every group has their, their rules and their guidelines and whatever, but, like, again, you're dealing with somebody's life and somebody's addiction, and, like, you're not, that's not helpful. And that, if, you, if that is what you feel like that group needs to be, do, it can be done in a different way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but, I mean, to get back a little bit on topic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we always, we always <laughs> like, We're circling around here, no worries. Um, so, you know, I went to treatment, I did the whole thing, and... At my treatment, um, they wanted you to get a sponsor, but they also made it, like, really hard to have a sponsor. <laughs> yeah, like, that was a problem, too. Um, because you had to... Um, certain requirements. You had to use one of your passes. You only get so many passes. You had to use one of your passes for your sponsor. Your sponsor had to be willing to come to Every you, week, and you yeah. weren't able to come to them. And um, it made it difficult, I guess, Um I mean, because me, I want you to do the footwork. <laughs> you know I, mean? like, right. I, I need you to be like, here's your pretty little package that I right. wrapped up for you. All you have to do is, I, you know, <laughs> take the tape off. But um, so I went all the way through treatment. Everything was kumbaya and treatment, recovery, yeah, yeah. Um, and I still didn't get a sponsor because it wasn't easy enough. And <laughs> um, and so I get out of treatment and. I'm with my husband, my now husband, who 
uh, he worked at a place called Valor House, which was a, a men's recovery place. And so we're living there. So I'm still in a recovery community, still surrounded by recovery. So all of that's going well. We're, you know, kind of going to meetings, but they're his meetings. They're not my meetings. And um, I'm pregnant, so I'm not working. It's literally just like living in his place, going to his meetings, everything mm -hmm. his. I'm very like out of place, isolated, secluded. And what do you know? Here comes that fucking misery again. Like that internal right. like misery. So like for me, you also have to do the, um, cause as we all know, we're all addicts. It's, you know, doing drugs is, is, it's the a symptom, symptom right. of the inside shit. So if you don't fix the inside shit, yep. you're just going to be sober and miserable, which in right. my opinion, listen, fucking I, way, yeah, worse. Yeah. way worse, bro, <laughs> way worse. there's no fucking escaping that shit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the bluey, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my yes, I don't know. I was watching her like, so this bluey I, the whole time. I have coffee. It's fine. Okay. Um, so, you know, I'm sitting there basically back to like white knuckling it, right. you know, thank God I was, I had the, the key components of like good people around me. Right. Um, I had the added responsibility of being pregnant for the first time. Um, I still say in my story that like, if it wasn't for my daughter, like I for sure would have gone back out. Cause I mean, I was on Booth Road. Like all right. I had to do was walk down the street, like, you know? Right. Like, one too many um, bad days and it was right there. Yeah. Um, but that's when, you know, like I said, fortunately I had key people around me that were like, um, you know, that's like, that's what the steps are like for, <laughs> right? Yeah. And like, so it didn't necessarily have to be like the steps if you're not a 12 stepper or something, but you need to have that, that, um, component of, working on the internal stuff right. yes. some way or another. Right. Whether well, it's um, some other kind of community, you know, not just 12 step, but there's also like celebrate recovery and there's like, um, yeah. right. And there's so many different options. And even if you're just using a mentor or even therapy, like some kind of content, I'm almost seven years clean and I'm still in therapy. Yeah. You know, I'm continuously working on myself, but part of that's because my internal belief of like, there's no place of stagnancy. You're moving forward or backward. Yeah. You're not rather move forward than backward. Yeah. And I mean, like that, that internal work is because the high of early recovery is only going to last you so long. Right. Yeah. Like you can't be in early recovery forever. Right. And life adjusts and things happen. Right. And especially when you come out of the little bubble of treatment. Yeah. Oh yeah. Because, and I, I wish they would structure it differently because you go from thing. an ASAM level 3.5, which is a structured residential to an ASAM level like one, which is aftercare where you meet once a week, you know, mm -hmm. and that's it's a big, if you even get that, right. I didn't even get that. That's a big yeah. shift of it's like, there needs to be a step in between. I went straight from home. treatment to home. Right. That's no accountability. That's right. what I did. I, I got out of treatment and I got my own condo and I didn't know what to do with myself. Right. And I was literally back at the house every day right. hanging out with the girls because I didn't know what else to do. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, there, there's still a lot of gaps in, yes. um, oh, for sure. in the system. And I mean, like I've seen, I've seen girls scrambling, like scrambling. And you know, they always, like when we got into treatment, they always push like housing, housing, housing. There's housing, not housing, enough housing, resources housing. or support. In like this. this day one that you get there and it's like, bro, I've been homeless for like four right. years. Like stop talking to me right now. 
Well, I'm trying to eat this sandwich for the first time in four years. So, like, if you could just shut up, that'd be great. And before you know it, the six months is up, and they will fucking kick your ass out. Right. Like, because they've only Can't got stay. so many. Like, at my at my program, they did have um, other programs, but they only have so many slots. Right. Mm-hmm. You know? And can't everybody can't get in. Right. That was a lot of the problem for me, I feel like. Like, I got really lucky that I didn't relapse when I got out. Oh, yeah. But I think because uh, they, so my my graduation date and my due date for my daughter were within four days of each other. So, and then if I would have had her there, they would have put me on a six-week quarantine where I couldn't leave the apartment or go anywhere or do anything. So, no meetings, no nothing. And I guess it's for safety reasons for the infants or whatever, which is... I, I get I get the reasons why there's rules in place now. I understand that. I don't necessarily agree with all of them, but that's not really um, my place or whatever. Uh, but I will say, I had a lot of questions, like, um, as far as, like, making a plan for having a baby. Because having a baby is a big plan. That's, you're, you're bringing a whole other life into the... the realm of existence like there's a lot of pieces that go into that and I continued to ask the treatment team like okay what are we doing how is this working what's going on and they well when it gets closer we'll let you know when it gets closer we'll let you know when it gets closer we'll let you know so for me it was completely opposite of what it was for you like they pushed housing on you guys from the very beginning yeah housing wasn't even a conversation I had until phase three and phase three only lasted for uh for me, it lasted for three weeks, but most usually it lasts between five and six weeks for the girls. So I had six weeks to like figure the fuck out with a brand. I had a newborn at the time too. They were going to extend me so I could do that. But, um, I had started already calling about housing and housing was full everywhere I called. Mm-hmm. So I started making a plan B, which was going back to my mom's at the time. I knew it wasn't the best plan, but it was, but it was the, the only plan, plan I had. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's what um, happens a lot. My brother lives with my mom and he's still using he was using at the time when I got back out so I moved back into a house with people that were actively using with a newborn mm-hmm. fresh out of treatment it happens a lot I think more than people realize. <laughs> it it was very heavy and I stayed there until it has, I hadn't even been gone a year um so I was there for the first two and a half years mm-hmm. almost three years but, but from the second you got there, you knew you needed to leave. Oh, absolutely. And I spent most of my time gone. Right. I only stayed there when I had to. Um, but I think that that's a big thing that is a hole we've talked about often, is a hole in recovery as far as, like, the transition from treatment back into, quote, normal life. Right. right? So even if you are in a place mentally or in your recovery – to where you're able to transition out. There's nowhere to go. Right. There's nowhere. The resources are so limited and mm-hmm. so small. And especially now, like, housing is astronomical. When I was in treatment, I applied for Paulding Housing. At five years clean, I got a letter saying I was coming up on the waiting list. Right. What the fuck did you want me to do for five years? Right. Like, if I wouldn't have had the support I had... I that's what I'm saying like there I mean because like you know there are people like me that literally don't have support like right. 
Thank God that day, because I mean, like that was how me and David even started talking. Because right. he was like, "Listen, I know you have like absolutely fucking nobody." Right, and I think that's where the community needs to realize and step in that we, the community support or a community support, whatever, is what makes the transition easier, right? Because if you have employers that aren't willing to hire you because you have a background, or you have people that aren't willing to work with you on running a house because you have a background, or they don't want to do it income-based, or you don't have family to help you get on your feet, like, I don't, dude, it really, it took my, my dad, my mom, my grandparents, Jeff, his aunt and uncle, my aunt and uncle, like, somebody that was willing to give us a chance on running an apartment, somebody that was willing to give us a job, like, it took a whole fucking network of support to get me to where I am. Yeah. Like, it's not something... That's why I see it time and time again. A lot of people that have no support, they leave treatment. They go the back only, to where they came from because yeah, that's they, it. That's all they have. And I mean, a lot of times it's a dope house. My, my second time going to the detox center, I sat there and I was like, listen, I don't give a fuck if you have a bed. I'm going to sleep right here until you do. Right. Because if I go back out those doors, the only place I have to go right. is the trap house. Like, the only place I have to go. And I'm pretty sure there's people looking for me out there. And they don't want to do nice things to me. And, um, like, this is life or death. Right. And, thankfully, I knew how to, like, work the system at that point. I knew if I said these, like, key words. I was like, listen, I'll go get drunk right now if I need to. Like, if I'm going to die. And they were like, oh, well, you said the magic word. Right. You know? Like, which that in and of itself is so fucked up. It is. That's, like, that we're... I'm trying to think about how I want to word this. Um... That knowing there are certain things that have to be done in order to receive the treatment that you need. Right. Okay. As as somebody that's in recovery and has been through the system, when people that are new in and are trying to do the right things, I've, heard from, away. I've heard from multiple people, um, if you really want the resources, you're going to have to <coughs> go drink or you're going to have right. to go get dirty before anybody will take you. And that is a horrible, horrible thing to tell somebody that's trying Clinging to stay on to sobriety. Yeah, like hold by, together a couple months. And, right, and and you're asking them to go out and do the very thing that they're trying not to do. Right, right. but in order to get the help that they need, they're going to have to do it. Yeah. Right, but that's yeah. the fucked up system that we're working in right now. Right, because I know most detox centers are are like that. Um, but there is, I will say, I was surprised to learn that some programs. That there are, I don't know, I don't know how many there are, but there are programs out there that you do have to test positive to get in. Because that was like a misconception. A lot of the girls when I was working at MAC doing intake, they thought they had to. I was like, no. Like, it doesn't matter if you're testing positive or negative. Like, See, my program was a positive program. And that's crazy to me. Like, yeah. because my, what about program, the my program made you go to detox first if you were positive. Uh, see, they denied me. Wow. They denied me the first go round, and I told them I was pregnant. And they said, "Well, that puts you on the top of the list, but you're not dirty and pregnant. If you're dirty and pregnant, you go to the very top. If you're an IV user and you're pregnant, you go to the very top. But if you're just pregnant and you're clean, you're on the same priority level as somebody that's just trying to get." It's so fucked up that like the the hierarchy, the hierarchy, know, the, the hierarchy of like when we're out there, we're like, "Oh yeah, I don't fuck with meth, ew," or "Oh yeah," I don't. but like. There's still here in recovery. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, do, how do, how exactly do you use the drugs? Though? Right. Oh, right. you're an IVs or cool. Come on in. Right, right. <laughs> right. Because it's so much more serious. So you know. I mean, but I guess it's like that with everything, though. Because like, 
Um, if you call 911 right now and nobody's like bleeding, actively breaking into your house, whatever, then like an officer will come out when they get there, but they're going to all the other ones first. Right. first yep. yeah. What would you say, Aaron, were some of the fundamental pieces of achieving and maintaining long-term recovery for you? For me, it just took, it, it, it took a long time because I needed, I needed to have a few relapses under my belt um, to learn things that I wasn't willing to look at and, you know, mm-hmm. right, those things that open-minded to take suggestions. To. Yeah. yeah, like I was still wanting to do stuff my own way. And so I needed every bit of the things that happened in my addiction to happen for me to get to a point where I was open-minded and willing to take suggestions from other people, even when I didn't want to. Um, and also learn the, the signs, you know, that happen months before right. a relapse happens. Right. And I've done quite a few uh, relapse autopsies to be more aware of that. So right. I can see it coming mm-hmm. if I am slipping in one area or another and I can correct it before I get too far down that rabbit hole. Yeah. And that's um, a huge piece for me because I, you know, like you said earlier, uh, you know, the, the balance thing not being, a, you know, it's not you know, a factual thing. And it, I struggle with it so much. And I'll get to a point where I'm slacking on my meetings because I'm, you know, right, all into work. And, and, then, and then I start feeling some yeah. type of way. So then... You know, I tip the scale the other way, and I'm doing meetings, like, every single day. And, you know, it's always one thing or another. Like, I'm just constantly tipping the scales. But having the awareness um, has been, you know, very important for me. And being able to be honest with myself, Mm -hmm. um, that's a huge piece also, the honesty. Right. And I think for me, that's, like, the biggest piece of anything. Like, I have to be honest with myself. Mm-hmm. enough to know like like you said because a slip or a setback happens way before we ever put a substance mm-hmm. in our body mm-hmm. so being able to be honest with ourselves and be like maybe mm-hmm. maybe I'm not doing so well mentally or maybe I'm not really taking care of myself or maybe mm-hmm. you know that's not a problem thought you know I'm fine um, and then the honesty with other people to go mm-hmm. to somebody and say hey mm-hmm. I am struggling or I right. had this fle- even if it's a fleeting thought dude I'll still call my sponsor and be like look I thought the other day it'd be a really good idea to get on one I mean I played it through and I didn't do it but you know because I don't think it never goes away right right it's something we live with inside us forever but it's something mm-hmm. that can be managed mm-hmm. um, with the right tools and I think the honesty and awareness are the two key pieces of that because when we see things we can call it as it is and fix it right uh-huh. because and my other thing is like every it doesn't matter what else happens dude I can fix everything else as long as I don't use mm-hmm. but to keep from doing that I have to have the honesty and the awareness to be able to call it out and and tell somebody about it mm-hmm. because it's I mean it's still there yeah. and it comes up yeah. whenever it wants to and sometimes it comes out of nowhere or something sideways and I'm like what the fuck is that mm-hmm. like yeah where did that just come from yeah and see I think that um that awareness and stuff and, and the because like so when you were saying um I called my sponsor the other day and thought that it was a good idea to be on one there was a time where like that would be like a <gasps> right. moment to me and like at the end of the day, when you realize that, like, yes, you have this. Right. It's only as big a deal as, as 
you need to make it in the moment. Um, that mentality shift for me is what like made it not so like jaw dropping right. to be fucking real about it and be like, yo, I sure would like right. a margarita right now right. or, um, you know, whatever the, whatever the case is. Um, and you know, I've, t- I've talked about it before. I, my, my brain wants to think in this like black and white thinking and like, this is fact. And having the awareness again to um, not say that everything, not everything is like concrete. Like what worked for me yesterday may not work for me today. Right? So much and time. like there is an ebb and flow to just life in general. Right. Yeah. And where you need to like, sometimes you need to shift. Right. And recovery isn't just this like hard, solid, right. straight path right. that you have to just like, Take, I have to go to my Tuesday meeting every week, you know. And what worked for me in year one isn't going to be the same things that I need in year seven. And we talked about this before, you know, that if my personal opinion, and it may be a taboo one and people may not agree with it, if I need the same exact thing in day one that I need on day 3,000 something, then I'm doing something wrong. Because you haven't grown. Right. And that's just my personal opinion. So what? not that I don't still have things in my life, but what I need is shifted. And it's not, you know, I don't need to go to five meetings a week. You know, I don't need to, like, it, it has changed. But there are things that I have put in place that still, you know, because I think the foundations are always going to be there, right? Uh, a belief in some kind of higher power, whether it's God, universe, nature, your whatever, whatever it is for you, um, you know, guidance, you know, somebody to help hold you accountable, walk you through things, walk you through whatever kind of steps or, um, you know, self progression that you feel like is right for you. Um, the, you know, daily inventory checks, you know, not that it has to be anything formal, but like what, Oh yeah. What was my day like today? What can I do better? You know, the, the constant act of growing. Um, so I do think that there are key foundational things that, everybody needs to get long-term recovery um that just may look different for everybody yeah a hundred percent the inventory stuff is huge too yeah and i had to be willing to literally let go of every everything dude um i think that was the most important thing for me and i talk to women all the time especially when i was working at imac that it's usually a guy right that they're not (laughs) willing to let go of and there's usually some kind of you know trauma bonding or codependency or whatever that goes into it and I think that was my first step in being able to achieve what I've achieved it's because I was with Jeff at the time and we were using together and I knew like even through all the shit dude I knew he was my soulmate and I was terrified that I would never see him again and it was really hard for me to get okay with that but I had to, right? Because he was one of those people that I had to had to cut off. Either you get with it or you get gone. Like, mm-hmm. thankfully, it worked out the way it did. But you know, I had to I had to change everything, and I had to be willing to take ownership of my part, you know, right. and make amends to be able to build the relationships that I built, um, to have the support that I had in early recovery. And I think another piece of that too is understanding why people may be apprehensive to support us in early recovery or to build those relationships because Mm -hmm. I know for me 
you know, it's time and time again. You know, I needed something or I took something or I was going to do better or whatever. So they've dealt with a lifetime of us doing these things, right? So sometimes it takes them some time to get there. But I also think that the family needs to be willing to see, right, that things are changing when they're changing and support in the right ways because we can't. Did you do this on your own? Like solely on your own? Did you? No, we can't. Like it doesn't work like that. We're literally coming from... Nothing. nothing yeah yeah like absolutely nothing and it's so like i feel like there sometimes i i argue with my husband about it because like he comes from um his family was always behind him like towards the end you know they would leave him in jail right and like natural consequences right you know and but they were always waiting for the day for him to like get right. shit together you know and they were ready and willing to be a part of his life when he did now granted he had to prove himself and right. you know all, all of the things i'm not saying that he had it like super easy or anything but um and then you have me that has like zero family i literally have my dad and he's an alcoholic so right zero family and um i'm like you just don't under like it's impossible to get a leg up like if you hadn't have come in when you did like i would have been right back on the streets a hundred percent a hundred percent i would have been because like you're working in treatment for what like mm, three months maybe like and we're in sandy springs so i'm not going to get an apartment in roswell (laughs) like you know and um like i have zero car like when I tell you I did not have one dollar when I walked in there, right. I didn't have an ID. I didn't have one dollar. I had, uh, they got me a food stamp phone. Right. And I think, you know, that's persistence and hope plays a big piece in that too. And I think that's where like the RCOs come in. Yeah, for sure. Like really important, you know, especially in trying to get in recovery or an early recovery because you can go to a place and, you know, they can help with the resources uh-huh. or they can do the warm hand, especially if you have people like you who don't have any support whatsoever you know you can find it there and you can get hope from people because it's nothing but peers dude and all these people who have you know changed their life you know and made changes for the better and all these things start happening for them and sometimes you know I remember when I first got into recovery it because you have people that you run into that like people have 30 days clean people have 60 days clean you know nine months clean seven years and the people that had 25 years clean like, that's amazing, right? But I can't resonate with you. Right. Like, I can't see myself getting there. You know, right. the person that has nine months clean when I have one day clean, okay. Like, right. maybe I can do that. And that's why I think, you know, the peer support or the RCOs are important because it's just, it's a variety of mm-hmm. people that are there. Yeah, yeah, I remember that that connection that I had more so with people that were early in. Yeah. And, like, we've talked about the pedestal thing before. Like, right. people that had more than two years, I was like... In absolute yeah. awe of what I got in early recovery. I was like, how in the fuck have you pieced together five years? Right. Like, you know, and, and then it becomes this thing where you feel like there's so much distance in space. It's like almost like um, I wanted to emulate these people right. so badly. Like, what were they doing with their lives? Like, they were like almost like recovery celebrities to right. me in a way. Mm-hmm. And That's exactly what it was yeah. like. And, like and, and now that I've put some time together and I know these people... And fortunately for me, most of them have stayed clean. They're like some of the strongest people in my network. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that all came from like a healthy 
amount of awe right. and aspiration and vulnerability and transparency mm -hmm. and all those things combined. Because if I had not done any of those things, if not, if I had not been like, what's your opinions on this? Or right. how, what do you think about these things? Or this is what I'm going through. Have you been through a similar situation? If I hadn't had that in the, the foresight to be able to ask these questions, I mean, I got really lucky with my first home group. Right. That was the fucking rawest room I've ever been in my life to this day. I mean, I have heard some shit in that room. Like, people pour their fucking souls out. Right. Like, you could, frequently would come in that room and could hear a pin drop. Right. I mean, that, that's, and like, that's the type of thing that I feel like sometimes I get, um, I'm not going to say, I'll say stagnant um, in some meetings because... I came, my very first home group, my very first meeting I was really involved in was a lot of real raw shit all the time. Right. Every meeting was that way. It didn't matter if there was five people in it or if there were 75 people in it. It was that way every time. So for me, that's where I felt like I got the most of my recovery right. was because people were coming in talking about bad decisions they made <clears throat> seven years in and how they almost relapsed last weekend. Right. And shit like that, like... Well, that vulnerability and connection, I think those are also important pieces of right. long-term recovery. Right. Yeah, but you you have to be um, willing to, to apply that to yourself. Right. Yes. Because let's be honest, it's not easy to walk into a room full of people that you don't know when you've got, you know, 10 days clean and be yes. like, hey, will you be my sponsor? Right. Or, right. God, hey, dude. can I get your number? That or, connection piece in early recovery is so fucking awkward. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Bro, Jade, Jade was the shit. Like, <laughs> trying to make friends. <laughs> she literally, she literally. So like, she she started coming to um, the CMA meeting, and like she was way over there, and I noticed her or whatever. At this point, it was like super clicked up. Yeah. Like the home group was yeah. super clicked. And up. that like, meeting were was deep. That meeting was door to door, right, right standing out of room, room. Standing, standing room, room only. Yeah. I mean, and motherfuckers would stand for an hour. Yeah. With the couch is full. Yeah. And so, like, she was sitting in the back, and then she slowly started, like, working her way over to the, to the home group side. And uh, then she just came up to me one day, and she was like, hey, my name is Jade. I'm really fucking awkward. I don't know how to fucking do this, uh, but we're friends now. Right. And I was like, <laughs> okay. And that, that was my intro for the first, like, year and a half. Dude. Bitch, I picked up a one-year medallion in that fucking room and didn't know nobody in that goddamn group. Right. Nobody. I didn't know anybody in that fucking group. Right. But I They think were like, who's going to give you your medallion? And I was like, I don't know. There was a dude in there, Danny. I used to get high with. He got clean. He just happened to run into him at this meeting. I was picking up a year chip. And I was like, hey, man, we used to get fucked up together. You want to give me my chip tonight? He was like, you want me to give it to you? I was like, I guess. I ain't bring nobody. He right. was like, all right, bet. So that's how little knowledge I had of a connection right. rebuilding it. Because my network was in Roswell. Right. And I had to rebuild in Marietta. Days. So I was picking up a year chip yeah. with a baby on my back like I got right now. Right. Like, hey, buddy, I used to sell to. You want to hand me my chip? You well, know what I'm saying? Like, it was, it was fucking I think weird. that's where I noticed, though, a lot of my stuff still coming up when I was trying to rebuild my network and hire them. My defenses, right? Because on the outside, these people, I'm sure, and I have heard, I looked like an unapproachable bitch who thought I was better than everybody. But what you don't know is that I'm like, you're all standing out front smoking, and I'm trying to walk into the meeting. I'm like, oh, my God, this is fucking weird. Nobody likes me. All of my shit, right? So I noticed that even at five years, when I had five years started, when I moved back to Hiram, 
it was all of my shit coming back up again, right? Uh Like all of these things, all of these defenses. And I had to, again, here we go with the same words, be willing, open and honest about what I was dealing with and be able to be vulnerable and be like, this is really fucking hard for me and it's awkward and I don't know how to do this. Uh huh. I think something that people, there's a barrier. Casey was talking a little bit about this, about defects versus assets or whatever. But there's this barrier that we have in our minds that we're not willing and vulnerable and all those things whenever we're using, but we are. Right. We just don't recognize that we are. We're willing to go to the dope man's Right, we're just willing to do different things. Mm -hmm. We need to. We're vulnerable enough to ask a complete fucking stranger for 10 cents. Hey, can I give you the scratch off for a sack? Right. Like, we're we're transparent enough to say, oh, yeah, man, dude, I'm trying to get from here to Woodstock, and I ain't got any money, dude. Can I bum a smoke, and can I also get, like, 35 cents out of your ashtray? Right. And I think that's the thing, learning to channel... So we have all these things that we need to stay sober. We have all these things that we need to have, these attributes that we have to have in order to maintain the life that we want to have. We just can't readily recognize them because, like they say in treatment, we're a dressed-up fucking garbage can, dude. We have spit-shot on the outside of our trash can with our, you know, rave clothes, as Casey (laughs) says, with her fucking 35 hair bows that match all her rave outfits. And, you know, like... (laughs) That's what we do. That's right. that's all we know how but to do. But on the inside. But in the inside, we're right. still the fucking dirty ass trash can, dude. Right. Because we got to clean that shit out. We have to be, we have to be honest and open and do all these things in order to get that life that we want. Right. Because slapping band aids made out of fucking opiates and dope is not going to fix the problem. Right, and that's why I always like always recommend continuing therapy. You know, yes. because I have a lifetime of stuff that's not going to be fixed in six months of treatment. Like, there's not a person in the world. I I mean, I will put five that would million dollars on it. There's not one single person in this world that would not benefit from therapy. Right. Yeah. If they truly, honestly, went and tried. I mean, I don't care if you're the fucking president or the queen of england or um fucking gandhi himself like you would benefit from therapy right (laughs) absolutely so well things that i got out of that were um key things like honesty openness willingness you know foundation connection support um, i think would be a lot of the key things any closing thoughts there I think we've about covered it. Thanks for joining us, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thanks for having yeah. me again. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, um, our first guest speaker we've had. I, I like know. that. We should do that more often. And we? we kept it under. Look, when we started this podcast, our goal was 30 minutes. Last time we literally had it dinging on us. Like, it off. I was like, that's good. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, until next time. We'll see you guys later. Bye. Bye.